Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter. We are making our way through this amazing book, and one thing I have learned over all the years of my preaching that as I go through all these books, book by book, the book I'm in becomes my favorite book. And this is no different. This book is so very encouraging. The letter of Peter to the aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as verse 1 states. Remember, this is Peter speaking to the Christians who are spread in that area during a time of very uh, of great unrest and fear for the believers themselves. For Nero is in power, the first uh, emperor that would turn his anger and wrath upon the Christians, would, would burn down Rome and then eventually uh, uh, blame it on the Christians and then use them as his scapegoat to kill and pursue and persecute these people. If you were writing a letter and you were writing to tell people how to deal with a circumstance, a society that hated you, what would you say? I challenge you, maybe this week, take and read all the way through First Peter and I confess that as I read through it, he is challenging the way I think. He's causing me to evaluate what exactly it means to live in a world that hates you and how you should live. We see this in First Peter chapter 2. Peter has lined out who we are in Christ and what is our purpose in life. Last week we saw it in verses 9 and 10. He has clearly established the theological foundation of our new identity, who we are, and he's established God's purpose for his own. The doctrine is established. The theological groundwork is laid. Now Peter turns to practical theology. The word practical means practice, in essence. Practice over theory, even practice... In light of doctrine, Christianity is practice, not only Christianity and doctrine. If there was one thing I would have for our church and one admonition to our church, I think this is very important for all of us. I I, I take it, and you could just be in our doctrine and in our ordination questions these last two days. These two men that are up for becoming part of our elder board are very theologically strong, doctrinally sound, and that is very encouraging. These men are the one hearing what we teach and are teaching what we teach, and they, they have doctrine down. Very exciting about that, and they're very excited about that. And I know our church as a whole, even fundamentals of the faith, is not something that's taught in most churches around America. We are doctrinally strong. At the same time, if there was one admonition I would have for us, I don't want to just be a church that has it here but does not practice what we know. Orthopraxy is what some people call it. It is the idea of putting doctrine in practice. What does Christianity look like lived out? What do we do? How do we act? How... Do the holy children of God act in a world that hates them? Peter turns to these marching orders now in verses 11 and 12. And you could say that verses 11 and 12 are really a summary of the rest of the book. It kind of gives you an idea of where he's going, these two verses. The marching orders are totally opposite from what we might expect if we read through the Old Testament. I want you to understand that we don't live in a theocracy. Israel was under a theocracy. God was working. We don't live in that anymore. There's a stark dis- difference from that theocracy of the Old Testament 
compared to today and what Christians do and how we live. Yes, we are a holy nation, as he mentioned last week, but we're a holy nation that acts different than the holy nation of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the holy nation was required to do what when they went into the, the, the promised land? What were they going to do? Literally, expel them, right? Kill them. Do, as a matter of fact, remember what happened to the one guy because he took a little bit of the spoils and left a little bit alive. And all these circumstances, there was punishment. Go in and wipe out the enemy. We don't have those marching orders anymore. Matter of fact, it's stark difference between this old covenant way and the theocracy of the Old Testament and the new covenant way. And you'll see that in our passages. We're going to see the marching orders of Christians under the new covenant are different. I'm sure over the next few months, many of our presuppositions, our pre-understandings are going to be challenged. It's going to speak, as we go through the next couple chapters, in direct opposition to what your culture and what your society is going to say to you. It's going to be the opposite of what you've been taught, what the world tells you, maybe even what many of our parents taught us growing up. It's going to be a stark contrast. We have been trained on who we are, based on what Peter's already said. Now we turn to what we must do. Last week we examined Peter's summary of our identity. Let's look at that again. Look at 2.10 or 2.9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. We saw last week our identity that we are a holy nation, a, 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 a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a God's people for God's own possession, and that our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. Often when we think of to proclaim his excellencies means having the right words to say all the time. We think it is becoming a great apologist or an evangelist. It's being a great orator. It is being willing to defend the faith with argumentation. But notice what Peter doesn't do in verses 11 and 12 and then the rest of the book. He doesn't say, memorize 25 scriptures and be ready to defend the faith with what you say. He doesn't say, establish a five-minute gospel presentation. That's powerful that everybody will not be able to speak when you finish. He doesn't say, knock on 100 doors a week. And share the gospel with all these people. He doesn't say, confront every sinner you meet in the workplace. Pointing out where they're wrong and where they're in sin. He doesn't say any of that. There's none of that the rest of the book. Instead, Peter speaks about our behavior. He speaks of how we are supposed to act and live. I'm not saying we're not supposed to have a defense, and be able to speak up and share the gospel. But especially in our society, I often think we put too much stock in what we say rather than how we live. Listen to me, beloved, closely. Peter shows us clearly over the next three chapters what we do establishes the foundation for whether we can even speak. That's crucial. In our culture, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social media things have made it about our voice, that our voice is important, that I get to speak to the world, and I get to say who I am and what I think. Beloved, 1 Peter says it's about how you live first and foremost. If there was anybody that could stand up and say, hey, give us some mercy, 
it would have been these Christians that were being hunted. Instead, Peter tells them what? Submission. That's the main thing. Submission. Humility. Oh, wow. So the question is, what is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness? What is that? Well, I would argue that you proclaim him by the way you live in the world. You proclaim him by what you say and how you act and what you, what you live out in front of these people. If you're humble to those who are, who are in charge over you, guess what? As the saying goes, actions do often speak louder than words. These two verses are a summary of the rest of the letter, like I said. Beloved, aliens who must witness to the world through their set-apart lives. Does your life reflect the glory of the one you proclaim? That's what it's about. This is an overview of practical Christianity. Let's look at our passage. Verse 11. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's walk down through this. This is not real complicated. I think you're going to get it as we go along. Very easy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we come and we recognize that this is your word, that it is perfect, it is inerrant, it is truth. Father, we pray that you will help us to understand your word and apply your word to our lives. We pray that the Holy Spirit will convict us of any sin in our lives. Lord, we long to be who we are. That is, that we will look like that holy, chosen people that we are. Father, we pray that you will work in each of our hearts today, that we may proclaim your excellencies to the world. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, that today your word will penetrate their hearts and that they will see that they need you and that they will turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Oh, please, Father, work in our hearts today. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. So today we are going to examine the three R's of practical Christianity so that we can know how to live as aliens in this world. There is the review, the requirements, and the results. I usually don't do real good with that, so that was the first, and notice they don't really, they're not real parallel, but it'll get the point across. The review, the requirements, and the results. Let's start with the review. Look in verse 11, the beginning there. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Peter starts with a short review of who we are. Remember, he just came off of saying that you're a holy nation, a set-apart people, a chosen people, God's possession. And if we were reading in the Old Testament, we would have seen that this is how Israel was described. And he would say to them, go into the land of Israel and you will be that holy nation in Palestine. You would be that, that holy nation. However, here he says, you're a holy nation, but guess what you also are? Strangers. Aliens. Again, there's three features of what he reviews about our Christian identity, and they kind of sit in conflict. Because when we think of us being chosen by God, and God's the one that controls the world, and He's the one that owns it all, and we're His chosen people, we would think, first thought would be, 
then that means we are the kings of this world. We are the queens of this world. And that whatever comes to our mind, if we speak for King Jesus, we can just tell it like it is, right? But then he turns around and the next verse says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. If God's in control of all the world, and he owns it all, and it's all in the palm of his hand, and we are his chosen people, wouldn't that mean we're not aliens and strangers in the very world that he created? Doesn't that sound kind of sit in paradox there? But in fact, we are. Notice he reviews these three features at the beginning. Before he calls them to action, he says, You are the beloved. That is, you are loved by God. It's obvious from all of what we've seen already that if we're saved, if God has declared us right, if we're chosen, born-again people, do you think God loves us? Oh, yeah, we are loved people, aren't we? But again, if you're in near, under Nero and you are a chosen race, a holy people, and God saved you and you're his possession and the whole world hates you, what would be one of the very first things that you might doubt? Does God really love me? Does God really love me? Everybody in the world hates me. And aren't they his people too? They're not. And at this point, he's saying, no, you are the beloved. Remember that. You are the loved of God. And no matter how the world treats you, you are the loved of God. You need to understand that. You are the loved of God. But then he says, you are an alien and a stranger. This is not our home. To have made a home next to people, yes, that's what we have done. But do you understand that you live in this world, you are an outsider, for lack of a better term. Do you consider yourself an insider or an outsider in this world? And again, what's the media tell us? What's the world tell us? The world tells us that we're no different, you're a part of it, we're all in this together. But in fact, what's the Bible tell us? Christians were all outsiders. <laughs> we're all aliens. And though everybody around you says, hey, you're just like me, you're one of me, we're all the same, we're in this thing together, what are they doing? They're telling us a lie of what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that everything we do and all that we are is the opposite of what the world wants to do. We are aliens and strangers. This is not our home. These are not our family and friends. Oh, really? Aren't they my family? <laughs> Aren't they my friends? What did Jesus say? I came to divide. And the fact is, is that often people that say they're our family, they are our family physically, but they are not what? They're not our true family. They're not, yet at least, they might come to know Christ, but at the point where they're not believers, they're we're different. We're set apart. He's saying this. We have to understand this. Strangers, what do we do? We settle down alongside of other people, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're like them. We are strange, literally, to the world, aren't we? By the way, if we're liked by the world and everybody, and we find ourselves agreeing with everything that the world does, what, does, what should that do to us? It could... It should concern us. Why am I agreeing with all these people? <laughs> Maybe we should evaluate. Are we supposed to agree with all these people? Beloved, we are strangers and aliens. That's what Peter says. Also, notice we are wrestlers. We are wrestlers. If you see, we are in a war against our old nature. It literally says what? To, to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Do you understand how different that is from the world? What does the world think of their fleshly lusts? They think, let's go after it. Right? Do you understand that it doesn't shock me with some of the agendas that are out there right now? The LBGT movement. It, that's not shocking. And beloved, they're no different than the, the man who has many wives or 
has affairs. The fact of the matter is, is that the world is doing what? They're pursuing their fleshly lusts. That's what they do. But we who are believers, we who are the chosen race, the holy people, the people set apart by God, we are wrestlers. We fight against our fleshly lust. We are at war with it all the time, aren't we? What does the world tell us if we make war with our fleshly lusts and say, no, I can't watch that. No, I can't do that. No, I can't download these things. I can't watch this garbage on TV. What does the world say about us? You're weird. You're strange. That's what the world tells us. The world is all about fulfilling their fleshly lusts. But we know it's a wage. We're waging war against it because we know that our souls will end up in eternity in hell if that was our desire and our delight. Look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are different, aren't we? We're a set-apart people. And is it because we were born that way? Well, trick question, really. (laughs) Physically, no. But spiritually, yes. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These things are waging war with their souls, and those people that succumb to this are what? Not going to get eternal life. But notice the difference of the believer. The one who has been born again. Verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God. We are now God's possession as he goes on to say. We are a holy temple. And so back to 1 Peter. What's he saying? He's saying the same very thing. That we who are born of God are now in a war. And a war to put to death our fleshly lusts. A side note here, a practicing Christian must always review who he is in Christ. Because our identity in Christ is the motivation behind our practice. In other words, don't... I hear this so... I, I hear this often, even out of Christians... I can't kill that pornography problem because it's who I am. What? That's not your identity. If you say that's your identity, you're bowing the knee to the enemy. You can't go down that road. Our identity as a holy nation, a chosen people, God's possession drives us, motivates us, causes us to live holy, set-apart lives. And we make war with our fleshly lusts because we have this new identity. And we hold on to it. Identity and practice are always interlinked. If you view yourself a certain way, you will do how you view yourself. You will act like who you view yourself. That's what Peter is getting at here. If, you proclaim, if you're all about, if your purpose in life is to proclaim him, what are you going to do? You're going to live a life that reflects somebody that wants to proclaim him. It, 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 isn't this common? This makes sense, doesn't it? So, he starts with a review. Remember, you're loved by God. Remember, you're an alien and a stranger and that all the world's different. You're different. And you're at war with your old man. That fleshly lust that's always trying to get you. Always causing you to stumble. Then he moves to the requirements. Look, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. This is the requirement for the believer. 
abstaining from fleshly lusts and maintaining your testimony or purity in light of everybody else you're around. He starts with this little phrase, I urge you. It's two Greek words compounded together. means to call alongside. Come on, come on, come with me. Do this, be with me. He, it's, it's, not a, it's not a harsh command. It's more of like, come on, you guys, get it. Come with me. Though the world and everybody hates you and everybody's trying to get you to fall into this trap, no, come on, let's be different. Let's be who we are in Christ. I urge you, come alongside me and let's pursue holiness and a different identity and and show ourselves different among the Gentiles. Notice the two requirements here. He says, for the beloved, those aliens, those strangers, those at war with their fleshly lusts. He first calls for separation and he says, abstain from lusts. Put to death the old man is how you could say it. It's the same thing that we saw back in Romans chapter 8, right? Again, the same concept is, is make war with your fleshly desires. The word abstain means literally to distance ourselves from fleshly lusts. This is a great, mark that down, write that, think about that for a second. To abstain from means to literally distance ourselves from fleshly lusts. Oh, this is so contrary to what I hear often in the counseling field whenever we're doing biblical counseling. All too often, people are asking me this question. I hear it way too often. Is it okay to do this? Is it all right if I do this? Is it okay to watch rated R movies? Is it okay if I have two beers a night? Is it okay if I go to the bar and hang out with my friends a little bit? Is it okay to do those things? What's, the, what's wrong with all those statements? We're trying to find how close we can get to the possibility of fleshly lust and not fall. Is this not true? We're always trying to get closer and closer and closer to the edge without falling off. That's the total opposite of what he says here. Do everything you can to distance yourself from the fleshly lust. Listen, beloved, I'll I'll be perfectly honest with you. I I don't think alcohol is necessarily a sin. I don't think it is. The Bible, Jesus drank wine. But if I know that I have a problem with alcohol and that it's it's very easy for me to feed that fleshly lust with alcohol, what should I do? Don't drink alcohol. Does that make sense? Uh, Is it just me? If I know that I have a tendency to have wandering eyes towards women, okay, that are dressed scantily, okay, if I know that that's a fleshly lust, Is it good for me to watch rated R movies that promote that? No. This is just common sense. Set ourselves apart from the things of the world that could cause us to stumble in these things. Right? Beloved, we need to be different. Set apart. Anything, you know, let's just be honest. If I right now asked you to think of three things that you have a problem with in your life, heart issues, <laughs> fleshly lusts that sometimes attract you, what, you know them, right? You got a couple in your mind? How do you abstain from those? Set yourself as far apart from those things as you possibly can. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you know your computer is a place that you can feed your fleshly lust, what do you do with the computer? Destroy the computer. Or get as far away from the computer as you possibly can. 
or set as many boundaries and protections to keep you from that. This is what he's talking about. We know that this stuff wages war with our souls, so let's distance ourselves from these things. Just say no. (laughs) We're in the abstinence movement, aren't we? This is what the Bible says. Look over at Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. It's very clear what are the things that are fleshly lusts. It's very clear. I love how whenever the Bible starts getting very practical, the practical theology, it is very simple. (laughs) God doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want us to... You know, sometimes some of the harder doctrinal issues, you have to sit there and you have to think and you have to meditate. You know, like some of the things Paul writes about, you have to meditate on. But here, he gets super clear. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Let's just start back in verse 16, actually. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are? Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is that? You know what I could call 18 to 21? America. The world. Right? But that's not what we are. We understand it. So we distance ourselves from those things. We don't see how close we can get to it. We run from it. And we submit to the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is alive and active in our souls. And we love Him, don't we? Numerous statements of faith on the internet. I was shocked at how many times this very quote, I'll I'll read you a quote. Statements of faith of Baptist churches and Bible churches all around the country have this little phrase, this little, it was amazing. You could scroll, you Google this, and it's like scroll every church I found. Many churches have this statement of what it means to be a Christian and how we should live. And it's the identical one. It says, We believe that all the saved should live in such a manner as to not bring reproach upon the Savior and Lord. And that separation from all religious apostasy, all worldly and sinful pleasures, practices, and associations is commanded of God. All these churches say this, but why is it that the church doesn't look any different than the world? Am I the only one that seems to be missing this? Beloved, we must abstain, distance ourselves from our fleshly lusts. They wage war against our soul. This idea of waging war against our soul is the personifies the flesh is out to destroy us. And again, If you think back to 1 Peter, what would be the natural intention? What would we think if you were Peter and you were writing to people that were under Nero, what would be the who would be waging war with you? Nero and the government. Listen to me. Everybody listen. The real war, the real war is not from out there, believe it or not. It's not the government. It's not. All those things, that's not the real war. The real war is here. (laughs) It's inside our souls. It's in our hearts. And guess who it is at war with? Every one of us. 
And where are you? You're in the battle, every single one of you. We are all, all susceptible to this. From the pastor down to the new believer, we are at war with our fleshly lusts. It implies an active aggression, not merely an antagonism. That means, look, do you, do you ever get the feeling, oh, I think I'm, I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know what? I look back and, boy, I, I'm doing a lot better right now. I, it, 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 every time I, I think about this, I, you know, you, you counsel various people with various issues, and they say, oh, I've done so much better lately. I'm like, oh, oh no, don't say that. Because the war's still going. You're still in it. You didn't get rid of the old body yet. You're still carrying that body of death with you. See, the problem with us is that what we do is we say, since I didn't fall into this major sin, I'm succeeding. And that's a lie from the enemy again. Beloved, how often do we need to understand that we are waging war all the time? You're all vulnerable all the time. A requirement for inner purity is not a once a month deal. A requirement for purity is a Hourly battle for every soul in this room. Nobody is exempt from this battle. Notice we are to be a witness. Keep your behavior excellent among the world. Maintain your testimony. Move from inner purity to visible fruit. (laughs) Demonstrate the glory of God in your life to other people. Notice it doesn't say keep your behavior excellent, your brother's behavior excellent among the nations. Does it? Does it say that? Oh, beloved, I see this all all too often, don't we? How many of you, be honest, be honest. How many of you this week found some sin in some other people? Do you see any? Oh, yeah. Don't we live in a society that that's what we do? I mean, that's what Facebook ultimately is. Point out everybody else's sin. Lay it out there for everybody to see. Isn't that it? It shouldn't be, but often is. Twitter, you can do it in, what, how many? 47 characters or 147 characters? Just blast somebody. That's our world. But he doesn't say that as believers. We're different. We're set apart people. And we're set apart because what we do is we honor God. Again, I would encourage all of you. You need to understand that. And I need to understand this. And I'm preaching to my own heart here even as I'm preaching to you. And I I had a a, a pretty extensive conversation on text this week with somebody that was just after people in general and one in particular. And went after and, oh, I was like, oh, please give me a break. I don't need any more of this. And you know what hit me? I found myself angry at her because she was blasting somebody else. And I stopped and I said, wait, I have a full-time job with my own heart. I can't even get through this conversation without getting angry. Maybe I should just not talk to you about this for a while. Let's take a break. We're being rude to each other. Will you please forgive me? I need to go spend time with the Lord. I don't know about you guys, 
But if my whole job is to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, I'm destroyed. I'm dead. You know why? Because I can't even handle my own heart, much less yours. I need to stay on my knees all the time. Am I the only one in this room that's there? My job is not to fix you and to make you be great Christians. My job is to abstain from fleshly lust that wages war with my soul. So all I'm telling you is what God's Word says. And if you don't like it, take it up with Him. I got a business. I got work to do. And guess where it starts? Mike. And guess what? I have to spend more time here than on you. If I'm going to keep my, my behavior excellent among the nations. It's a full-time job, isn't it? All of us must be careful to examine our own hearts first. This is what being a witness to the world is all about. Third, notice the results. So that in the things which they slander you as an evildoer, as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What an a verse. This is an amazing verse. I love it. There's three results of living a set-apart life that are revealed here and being a witness for Christ. We see first that we're going to be slandered. Oh, my. Being slandered is, guess what? For the believer, for the alien, for the holy nation, the chosen people, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be slandered. The believer will be slandered as an evildoer. Do you see the irony here? The irony is the one who is seeking to do good are going to be called evildoers. <laughs> do you see that? Why is it that way? Because the world says good is evil and evil is good. And for us that are believers, we say good is good and evil is evil. And I must live good, praiseworthy, honoring God. And so when we do that, what happens? We are slandered. Peter is referring to the act of adversely criticizing and slandering the person with malicious gossip. And folks, you've got to understand the setting here. Do you understand what they were saying? They were saying, our allegiance is Jesus Christ. He is our king. I will live for him. I will honor him. Do you understand that that flew in the face of all of their religions, all their false religions? Because all their false religions could have multi-gods. And often, their, even their immorality was a way to worship their God. Do you understand that? It, it, it's very much more deceptive today. But we still hear it, don't we? Why would God create me? I'm giving you an example. Why would God create me to have a love for a person of the same sex as me? Why wouldn't he want me to enjoy that love? So what are they doing? They're using this as what? An excuse for their sin. And if we say, no, you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Or rather, we just live in a way that says, no, I've got to exalt my wife. My wife is my partner. This is who God's given me. If we do that and live that out, they're going to look at us and say, you are an evildoer. You hate me. We see it in our world, don't we? But being a set-apart people means that our desires and our purpose is to exalt Jesus no matter what. You know what you're going to see over the next two months as we go through the next chapters? Most of what the world tells us. Do you understand? If you speak that, that it is, it's a good thing if a wife submits to her husband, you know what you are in our world? A hater, a chauvinist. 
That's what you are. But 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, that's what the whole thing's about. We're going to see this all the way. We're going to be slandered. And again, do we pick fights to just have an argument with people? No, we don't do that. We live different. And when we do, the world gets angry. I think of Daniel, don't you? Think about Daniel. Even in his role, his position as he rose up in the, in the, in the government there, God raised him up. What happened? People began to be very angry at him because he was a man of a wisdom, an honorable man, an honest man, actually had the, the leaders back. And what happens? They plot to get him thrown into the lion's den. Beloved, this is what's going to happen with us. There's an anonymous quote that says, Our friends love us in spite of our faults, but our enemies hate us in spite of our virtues. Hmm. Why do people hate us in spite of our virtues? I would say they hate us because of our virtues. If we exalt God with our behavior, it is like turning the lights on in a dark world. Correct? And it's going to fly in the face of everything that the world thinks. But notice, we are observed. We're observed. They may, because of your good works, good deeds, as they observe them. Good deeds, they're going to see us. They're watching, aren't they? I'll never forget being an unbeliever, watching. I'll never forget being at the post office and uh, having some Christians, believers there. And my, my language was atrocious, beloved. It's horrible. And I talked horribly. I admit it. And next to me would be these male, they, they were working, and their language and their talk was so different. And I remember my talk was horrible. It was bad, evil. And as time went along, I asked them, well, why, why don't you talk like normal people? Why? Because we want to honor God with the way we talk. And then it was me. I'm like your co-workers that are, oh, can't say that around you. Right? But what was I doing when I was saying that, by the way? to a sense, In a sense, I was mocking them. In my mind, I often thought they were what? Self-righteous. Do you understand that often when the world does that to you, that that's what they're doing, really? But that's not why we do what we do, right? We are being observed, but ultimately we're doing this for whose glory? We're doing this because Jesus died for us and we love him and we want to serve him. So we are observed. And I think and I believe wholeheartedly at times actions do speak louder than words. And folks, I'm just going to be honest. This goes all the way for your families too. If we yell at our kids and berate them, mistreat them, don't honor them. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't supposed to obey, but if we, if we treat them like the world, guess what? When we go to speak to them about the gospel, they're going to say what? Oh, really? You really believe this? They're watching. The world is watching. What happens? If we live this out, you're going to see this. As we live this 
Christian walk out. By the grace of God, the Spirit working in us, and we have the fruit of the Spirit, guess what happens? God then, in His sovereignty, decides to call some of them. And He visits them, is what this is talking about. And when He visits them, what happens to them? They turn around and do what? Give glory to God for what God was doing through you. That's what this is talking about. What does verse 9 have to do with verse 12? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Answer? So that when He calls them out of the darkness and into the marvelous light, what do they do? They glorify God. Wow! Wait! Okay, now I want you to hear this and listen closely. We're almost done. Hang in there. Almost finished. Guess how we can often proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We do it through other people's testimony of His glory. Oh, you, I don't know if you got this. This is so important. Very, very important. I hope you get it. How do we proclaim Christ to the world? You ready? We proclaim Christ to the world when the world proclaims Christ because they saw Christ in us. Wow! Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen that? Has it happened in your life? Have people said, man, the way you act is so different from the rest of this world that God began to work on me and I realize I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and he saved me and I exalt him and I'm with you now and I get you now and I want to serve with you now. Tell me about Jesus more so I can serve him. That's what it's talking about. And we're going to see it all the way through the next two or three months as we make our way through these passages. Beloved, this is going to take an act of God, isn't it? It's going to take God working in our hearts to happen. Please help us, right, Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. What a passage. Lord, we want to. We want to make war with our fleshly lusts. We want to be a set-apart people that exalt you always in both what we say and what we do. Please help us, Father, to be an example, a testimony of your grace on display. Oh, Father, please protect us. Sanctify us, Spirit that we may exalt Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in His name.